have uh, Bibles. If you don't have a Bible with you today and you want one, we're going to be using it a lot. And so if you need one, go ahead and raise your hands. We have some people in the back that will bring them to you. If you have a friend that you need to give a Bible to, then this is that Bible. And uh, grab it and give it out to them. Um, We want to begin by saying we're starting a new series today. Uh, It's called Blood Covenant with the idea that God absolutely knew what he was doing when his son came and died and shed blood for us. In fact, he had written it already in the language of the entire world. And at the time, people would have completely understood and completely got it. And we don't really live in a culture today that sheds blood for much other than war and minerals and, uh, or territory or, or something like that. We don't shed blood for much, but this is a culture that shed blood for quite a bit. So other than mathematics, blood was the universal language of the world. It was the language which every culture around the world spoke. In fact, there were blood covenants made all around the world. So I want to start for a second by just taking us on a journey of world cultural anthropology. So if you just put on your, you know, take off your biblical studies hats for a half a second, put on your cultural anthropology hats for a second, we're going to dive into this in a second. But first, I want to give you a definition, and then we've got a lot of stuff to talk about in the Bible, so we're just going to jump right into it. So a blood covenant between people is a form of mutual covenanting by which two persons enter into the closest and most enduring sacred of relationships by the inner commingling of blood. This is something that has happened in every culture, in every nation, in every continent, probably Antarctica, maybe not Antarctica, but every single place that we know of in recorded history. So this is when blood leaves my body and goes into your body. Kind of disgusting, right? And there's a reason why we don't practice this now. Now we know about bloodborne diseases and things like this. But these were called covenants of strong friendship. And they were between people and between deities. So what I want to talk about for a few minutes is how we'll go kind of around the world first and look at blood covenants that were made around the world. And I want you to get this because when we look at the Bible, you'll go, oh, wow, God knew what he was doing. So first, the Middle East, there is all kinds of um, writings that we know of where they would take um, a saber or a lance or, you know, something sharp, and they would literally cut their hands, the palm of their hands or their wrists, and they would take their lifeblood out because blood equals life. This is the universal language of the world back then. Blood equaled life. And what they would do, this is kind of disgusting, okay? So, you know, if you need to wince, go ahead. Um, But they would rub, the two covenanting partners would rub their blood into each other's veins. It meant my blood is in you and your blood is in me. Therefore, I am obligated to protect you and to give you peace. And therefore, you are obligated to protect me. And if your clan goes to war, I'll go to war with you. And if something happens to you during war, I'll take care of your family. And this is something, what they would do is they would take a quill and they would suck, this is, Gross. This is what happened. They would suck the blood out of the veins and they would literally sign a covenant document with terms of their covenant. Some of them would drink it as to say, your lifeblood has entered me. It seems disgusting, but let's keep going here. Um, This is the Middle Eastern covenant is probably the oldest one that we know of in recorded history. 
the life of the one making the covenant is surrendered to the other person. Is surrendered to the other person. The people involved in blood covenants are now closer than biological relations. So literally, if you made a blood covenant, if you're a man and you made a blood covenant with a woman, you could not be married because it would be considered incest. So you could not do that. In fact, if, like I said before, if two men are covenanted together and one dies in battle, the other would be obligated to take care of the family of the other. Let's move to Africa for a second. In Africa in the 1800s, there was an explorer, missionary, and kind of a medical missionary named Livingstone who wrote incredible journals, and he had blood covenants with over 50 tribes. And at the end of his life, he kind of joked that, you know, if any of these people went to war, he's obligated to defend all 50 of them. Um, So essentially, he went through Africa, and he learned that if he wanted to keep his head and save his life, then he would have to make a covenant with the leader of the tribe. And oftentimes, it was through blood. So one of the things that they would do, a lot of these uh, covenant cultures, or a lot of these older cultures, uh, every culture in the world brewed beer. And what they would do is they would, they would cut themselves, they would pierce an ear, pierce a nose, uh, they would cut their arms, and they would uh, drip blood into the beer, both of them. And then they would drink it. As I was saying, your lifeblood is entering my lifeblood. I am now obligated to protect you. You are obligated to protect me. This is a language that the whole world knew. Livingstone one time was removing a tumor from an indigenous woman, and her blood, this is gross, sorry, squirt in his eye. And in the middle of the, the removing of the tumor, she, told, she joked with him and said, before you, are a, you were a friend, now you were a blood relation. If you were ever close, call me so, or contact me so I could cook for you. They saw each other as closer than a family. Europe. This was huge in Europe. In Norseland or Norway or, you know, what we know today, the covenanting partners would, again, they would tie their hands together. They would pierce their hands so the blood would flow into each other, into each other's veins. They would lay down, the two covenanting partners, and oftentimes these were military people, they would lay down in a grave that they dug as if to say they were dead to their old life and they would rise to their new life. All incredible biblical symbolism that we'll talk about later on. North America, this, this ritual, this covenant, this happened all over the place. Um, Native American Indians, the Sioux Indians, they are known for the peace pipe ceremony. Well, many people didn't realize that the peace pipe ceremony actually was a blood covenanting ceremony by which you would bleed onto the the tobacco that was dried out and you would put it into the pipe and you would pass it around and inhale each other's blood. So we have some tobacco leaves at the end of the service. No, I'm kidding. If everybody looks under their chair, there's a sharp dagger. No, that's not true either. Um, But my point is, they got it. They understood it. Down, you go down into South America, the Mayan Indians practiced human sacrifice to, to their divinities. They would tear the heart out of a living person and give that to their God. They would take blood in a straw and blow it up heavenward. Blood was a common language around the world. And while um, we might be refined 21st century people, and it's gross to us, this was commonplace. This was life. This is how life worked for people. 
And so we have to understand this when we begin to look at Scripture. Another, um, so people made covenants between humans for protection, and they also made covenants with their God. They believed that by taking the blood of their God or taking the blood of another person, they would take on their fundamental nature and their character. And so one of the things that they would do, has anybody seen, raise your hands if you've seen um, Exodus, Gods, and Kings, that, that one movie? Nobody saw that? Okay, one, two people saw that. Okay, it was a, it was a pretty good movie. Um, uh, you know, they didn't exactly stick to the biblical script, but, you know, it, it was really historically accurate. Pharaoh, one of the very first scenes, there's this goose, and they pull out the innards, and they're trying to deduce the future by the innards of a goose. And by the time the, the priestess is done, Pharaoh takes his finger, dips it in the goose's blood, and goes, and eats it, drinks it. Blood communion with his deity. This is something that happened in every single culture. Blood communion with deities. Because they believed that they would bring on a certain power. They would bring on a certain uh, level of nature of their God, their character. So man always sacrificed to God, and, and man always engaged in blood covenants. Now, God as man saw it, whether it was a, a deity that didn't really exist or whether it was the Lord. Let me give you a quick example. The first sacrifice in the Bible, Cain and Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain uh, brought some of the fruits of his soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel brought an offering, fat portions, from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offerings, but on Cain and his offerings, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. So God looked with favor on Abel's sacrifice. Why? See, Cain offered God his earthly possession, whereas Abel's sacrifice would have been seen as a substitution for Abel's own body. So when he brought him fat portions, the blood that flowed from that animal would have just been understood, you understand, through the course of time, just would have been understood that this was a blood from an an animal, like it substituted for Abel's life. That's what a sacrifice was many times. It was either a substitutionary thing for God or a substitutionary thing for man. Like I lay down my life. And next week, we're going to talk about uh, the Passover, and the goat was a substitutionary atonement. It was God, it was represented God's own blood. We're going to talk about that next week. But essentially, Abel said, I'm willing to sacrifice all of me. And Cain simply said, here's some stuff I grew. And so his sacrifice was looked on with favor. Now, I want to talk about three other covenants real quick, that would make sense in a biblical picture. Like what I'm saying, God understood what he was doing when the world naturally just went towards blood covenanting. So first is Bedouin marriage. Bedouin groups are nomadic people that live um, all throughout the Middle East. They travel with the seasons. They go to different grazing yards for their their flocks. And here's what would happen. The bridegroom would go to his father-in-law the day of his wedding. And he would bring a young lamb. And he would take the lamb and slit the throat of the lamb, spilling its blood on the floor. And when the blood hit the floor, then they were married. They were technically married. They had done all the other ritual sacrifice. And then what the the bridegroom would do, would take the blood of the lamb and sprinkle it on his bride. Now, understanding 
that if you understand biblical theology, you understand New Testament, Jesus all over the New Testament was called the bridegroom. And all over the New Testament, the church is called the bride. And all over the New Testament, again, Jesus is called the Lamb of God. From John all the way to Revelation, he's called Jesus the Lamb of God, whose blood covers his bride, the church. Something that was happening already in world history. God used that language to show us how much he loved us. Another one, in the Indian culture, in the Indian continent, there was a, adoption was a widespread practice, especially in ancient times. Because parents would die from war, disease, famine, whatever, and and children would need a place to go. And it would have been a natural thing to do to do a blood covenant ceremony for these people. Because the children were not actually blood of the parents. And so what they would do is, is, as crazy as this might sound, is that the parents would cut themselves, the children would be pierced, either through their nose or through their ears, and they would commingle their blood together to show that we are all family now. We all have the same blood within us. Are you guys with me on this? The, in the Bible, what is, Jesus, we're called into adoption by Christ through his blood. God is using the language of the world to communicate something to us so powerful, so amazing that he wants to have this relationship and adopt us into sonship. John 1, 12 through 13 says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in him, he gave the right to become children of God, children born of not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or by a husband's will, but by born of God. See, Jesus' death on the cross means we are adopted as sons and daughters into his kingdom. Wow. God's using powerful imagery from around the world. One last one, and this is the one we're going to focus on today. We're going to get, um, if you have a Bible and you want to turn to uh, Genesis 22, go ahead and flip there because we're going to be there for a few minutes this morning. All the way from Syria, modern day Syria, the Assyrian people, all the way to China, there's been a covenant ceremony that's been written about, about the death of the firstborn. Firstborn son, in particular. And what this ceremony talks about, and we have written record all the way back to 2697 BC on this. And here's what it was the emperors or heads of large tribes with large families many times would sacrifice their own son to their deity so that the rest of their tribe would be covered by his blood, so that their guilt their wrongdoing, any of that other stuff would be taken away by the death of the firstborn. Do you smell what I'm stepping in here? This is big, heavy stuff. So they would sacrifice this, and we even know that this happened once in the Bible, um, other than Abraham and Isaac, which we'll look at today. Second Kings um, excuse me, 327, the king of Moab is losing a battle to Israel and he feels like they could really turn this around if he just sacrificed his son on the wall. And so this is what he does. Second Kings chapter three, verses 27, it says, then he took the firstborn son who was to succeed him as king and offered him as a sacrifice on the city wall. The fury against Israel was great. They withdrew and returned to their own land. This is a practice that we know about, that was written in history about. It was believed that if you had a large clan, that that firstborn son, the blood of that son, would absolutely cleanse the rest of your clan from generation to generation. Wow. Somehow, 
this was written in the minds of people. I'm not saying God told them to sacrifice their kids. I'm saying somehow they put this together. This was a common language. Now, again, Genesis chapter 22. I should flip there too. Genesis chapter 22. So before we get into this, we have to understand that God and Abraham have already made a blood covenant. They've already had this relationship. In fact, God says, I want you to go get me, um, uh, it, it was, a, what was it? A, a goat, a pigeon, a, a, a heifer, a goat, a ram, a pigeon, a dove. And he sliced them in half. And remember, Abraham walks through that. And then in, in chapter 15 in Genesis, there's a fiery pot that passes through, symbolizes making this covenant. Those animals symbolize God's own blood for the covenant. And then a few chapters later, Abraham has to get circumcised. And the reason why he does this is Abraham has to spill blood too. And a covenant literally means a cut. And so you have a mark on your body representing this. Some cultures branded or put tattoos on you. And so Abraham had to have a mark of the covenant. And so he was circumcised on a male reproductive organ. The reason for that is to say, all other children that come from my line must enter this covenant or are covered under this covenant. And so that became a ritual that they would do. So Genesis chapter 22. Let's dig into this this morning. Is everybody with me at this point or did I completely just lose all of you on this? Okay, you're with me. Good. I saw a couple head nods. All right, Genesis 22. Like I said, it would help if I'm on chapter 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, uh, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. He's being specific, not the other one that he had illegitimately. And go to the region of Morah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain I will show you. Now, here's why this is a test. This is a test to Abraham for the covenant. Is Abraham really going to follow the covenant? This is a test. Is he going to agree to the terms, the terms of, I will bless you from generations and you give me your families, all this stuff. Human covenants required you to stand ready to give your life to your covenant partner. If you made a human covenant, you had to stand ready to give your life to your covenant partner. In fact, you would have to stand ready to give anything your covenant partner asked. For Abraham, the one thing that meant more to his own life was his son's life. Now, when God initially came to Abraham and said, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you all. I'm going to bless you with abundance. Abraham goes, what what in the world would that matter? I don't have a son. In other words, to inherit. I need a family line to inherit all of this stuff. If you're going to really give me stuff, I need a family line to inherit land and everything. So what does it matter without a son? And so the one thing that meant more to Abraham than his entire life was his son Isaac's life. Because he was the child of the covenant. He was the one who would carry on his name. He was the one who would take God's plans and put them into practice. He would make them reality. So for a human covenant partner, if a human covenant partner came to Abraham and said, Um, and asked for Isaac, Abraham would be compelled to give Isaac to him. So here's what God wants to know in the test. Would Abraham do as much for his divine friend as he would for a human friend? 
Would Abraham do as much for his divine friend as he would for a human friend? Let's pause there for a second. Let's pause there. How many times in our lives do we give ourselves to our friends, to soccer, to baseball, vacations, all this good stuff? My daughter's entering gymnastics this week. I I understand we are going to be giving ourselves to a gymnastics studio for, for some time. But how many times do we just simply give out our lives and when other people ask for things, we just so jump on to that? Oh, sure, we'll do that. And we keep giving and giving and giving of ourselves. And so the question that Abraham is faced with is a relevant one today. Would you do as much for God as you would for your best friend? Would you give up as much as you would for your best friend? See, our best friends are like right here among us, and so we're like, yeah, absolutely. I would absolutely give something up for my best friend. But God's saying, hey, you don't see me. Would you give all that up for me as well? So getting back on track here, Abraham is giving a sacrifice of Isaac. And it wasn't a selfish thing. This is a horrible act of love, giving to God the one thing that he valued more than human life. And I really believe, given the record that we have, the historical and anthropological record that we have of human sacrifice of the firstborn, I really believe that Abraham was ready to pound that knife into his son's chest and end it. Verse 3, early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw a place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I go over there. Go, uh, while, and, I'm sorry, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, he himself, I'm sorry, as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar where they arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac. He laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But an angel of the Lord called out from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up there in a thicket and saw a ram caught by his, thorns, by his horns. And he went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, where the Lord provided. Many people take this text as barbaric. Why would God have him sacrifice his only son? Many people take and look at this text and, and just write God off completely with it. But like I said, there is a text understanding, a contextual understanding in history where this had happened before and before. It's almost as if God is saying, I am not like one of those deities. 
I provide for my kids. I love you. I care for you. I won't allow you to go through that. I love you. God provided a substitute. This is really important. God provided a substitute for Isaac's blood. See, it's interesting because just as Jesus is a substitute for us, offered human blood for us, this ram would become a substitute for Isaac. Because of Abraham's obedience to the covenant, he was known as God's friend. Now, what you have to understand is that this is something completely unique to the Bible. When you start reading other ancient texts, you don't ever see where somebody else was a friend of a deity. It just doesn't exist. The closest thing that we know of is when Moses and and God talked, and he said they spoke to him as a friend speaks, but it's different verbiage, it's different wording. So we see something through Scripture is really interesting that Abraham and God were covenant partners and became covenant friends. Covenants were called a covenant of strong friendship. Let me just breeze through a couple of Scriptures so you can see this. Isaiah 41.8 But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you, descendants of Abraham, my friend. James, um, I'm sorry, Second uh, Chronicles 27, Our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And then James 2.23, And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. See, God was doing something else completely different than all the other cultures of the world. All the other cultures of the world were using this whole blood covenant sacrifice system. But God was doing something different. Instead of sacrificing your only son, he was taking that practice away. And he was joining his life with humanity's life and saying, come be part of my character. Come and and take from me my nature. And And you will be a blessing when we are covenant friends. But we get this idea that Abraham and Isaac were foreshadowing things to come in Scripture. We can't just stop there. So as we head up through history, Jesus absolutely had this in mind. This was a huge practice. Mark chapter 14. There we go. Mark chapter 14. All right, let me try it again. There we go. All these tabs, I should remember which one is which. Mark 14, Jesus is having a Passover dinner with his disciples. And at verse 22, he says, While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples. Take this. This is my body. Then he took a cup. When he had given them thanks, he gave it to them and drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. So Jesus is saying, I am giving my blood to you. And it's interesting, too, because grapes were used as substitute, crushed grapes were used as substitutions for blood. In fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, it says the blood of the vine, which means that a grape is a substitutionary thing for actual blood. So what Jesus is doing here is not just the communion ceremony that we practice, you know, a couple times a month. 
where we just, it's not just a practice of having a little snack. What Jesus is actually saying is, I'm going to create a brand new covenant with you. I want you to take my blood, which is representative in the juice. I want you to take my blood. And we'll share nature here. You will take on my identity, my image, my nature. But he will actually substitute his own blood in our place. Where we should have died. Because it, it, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. I mean, what we do to offend a holy God is death. There is, there is no other substitute for that but except for Jesus. But Jesus wanting to now lay down his life for his friends, his covenant friends, says this in the book of John. John 15, verses 13 through 15. He says this to his disciples as kind of the last, um, kind of the last uh, couple moments of his life and or, you know, a couple days of his life he's spending with his disciples. And he says this, see if you could catch the covenant language. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you my friends for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. This is covenant language that the world would have understood. That now God on earth wants to be our friends. Wow. See, through this new covenant, we get to become friends with God. When you accept what Jesus has done for you, when you ask him to be Lord over your life, when you ask him to take the stain of sin away, he simply calls you friend because now you are covenant partners, obligated to take care of each other. We are called to lay down our lives for the king. And what does that look like? You remember that Norse ceremony I was telling you about where they laid down in a grave and they covenanted with blood, and then they got up to a new life. That's baptism, folks. That's what we do with baptism, is a symbolic of dying to your old self and rising again. So just as she, Jesus shed his blood for us, we are called to lay down our lives and surrender to him. So today, we're going to celebrate communion. And I hope that we do this with a new, fresh reality that as you take the body, and, and what we'll do is we'll, we'll break the bread, and we're going to have a couple teams of people up here, and we simply want to open the altars, open a time, maybe go back to your seats, just open a time for prayer for you. We're going to play a couple songs. But simply what this is, is a time for you to connect with your covenant partner, your friend, Jesus, the one who stood in the path and took the cross God knew exactly what he was doing. He's speaking the language of the world in blood when he gave his son. So today, I hope that communion would be something special for you. Maybe it's a time, you know, John Wesley would say that this is a means of grace. Maybe it's simply a time where you need to confess some stuff to God. You need to say, you're my covenant friend and I've been keeping some things. I know you searched my heart. There's nothing I could hide from you. I need your forgiveness. I need to start fresh. Maybe it's simply a time 
where you accept Jesus for the first time and say, I want to be covenant partners with you, God. I've been trying to live the way that the world wants me to live, and it's just not working. It's not flying. It's just not going to happen for me. I need to be covenant partners with you. As we take communion today, I want to read this one verse that's unfortunately become commonplace, and so we kind of breeze over it. But when we think about God's covenant language and his love for us, we've got to go through it a little bit slowly. We've got to pause on it. As we think about what Abraham did with his son, let's not gloss over this verse. It's not just a common verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Our sin deserves death. We don't deserve the good things that God wants to give us. But Jesus came and took that punishment for us so that we can be called friends of God. So that you could have a relationship with the almighty creator of the universe. We have uh, a a few people who are going to volunteer to help serve us offering today. And I'd like to have them come forward and then we'll pray. So Jesus in the last day took the bread and um, he broke it. That's what we do. And if those holding the bread would put the glove on and then take the cup and take your places. Um, Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he began to to hand it over to his disciples saying, this is my body, this is the provision for you. I'm literally giving my whole self to you. And this is my blood. We just want to invite you to come and during these next couple songs and and peel off a piece of bread and and dip it in in the, the cup. And take a few moments, whether you take it back to your seats, but simply take a few moments with the Lord. Maybe you just need to say, Lord, you are my covenant friend. Maybe you've been not the best friend back. And you need to redo that with God. God communicates just the same way we do. He wants to speak to you. He wants to have a conversation with you. And he wants to call you friend.